0: Now it's my pleasure to introduce Tim Wu. Tim Wu is an author, policy advocate, and a professor at Columbia Law School. He also serves as the chairman of the media reform organization Free Press. Mr. Wu was recognized in 2006 as one of 50 leaders in science and technology by Scientific American Magazine. He is best known for developing the term net neutrality and the theory behind it. He writes frequently about copyright, international trade, and the study of lawbreaking for publications like The New Yorker, The Washington Post, Forbes, and Slate. Please give a
1: warm welcome to Mr. Tim Wu. In 1934, a man named Clarence Hickman had in his office a secret machine. It was a machine unlike any other in the world, the only one of its kind, and only he had it. Mr. Hickman was an engineer, He worked for the Bell Labs in New Jersey. And the Bell Labs, in turn, were owned by the mightiest telephone company that history has ever known, AT&T, then America's great information telephone monopolist. The secret machine that Clarence Hickman had in his office would in time come to revolutionize not just the telephone industry, but in fact, our lives. For the machine he had in his office was a tape recorder. The first magnetic recording information uh, system known to man. And Hickman had combined this invention, the tape recorder, with a telephone so that when you called him and he wasn't there, you could leave a message. So the secret machine in Clarence Hickman's office was an answering machine in 1934, fully functioning, about six feet tall. (laughs) But the interesting thing about this story is that the answering machine, despite being in functional form by 1934, did not reach the American public until the late 70s and, in fact, the early 80s. It turns out that Mr. Hickman's answering machine, his tape recorder, the existence of it was not discovered until the 1990s by a historical researcher who went through the Bell archives. Because Bell decided sometime in the mid-1930s that the tape recorder must die. Not Bell Labs, but AT&T decided in a secret memorandum that the tape recorder posed a grave danger to the telephone system. That, so to speak, the telephone and the tape recorder could not coexist in one country. Now, why would you think this might be so? The memorandum, it's unclassified now. AT&T is, uh, well, it's still around, but you can get access to it shows two lines of reasoning for why the tape recorder was a danger to the American telephone. Number one, they reasoned that businessmen would avoid the telephone for fear the other party was recording the conversation and therefore might later contradict a contract. So businessmen would, from that point forward, avoid the telephone. The second reason was even more interesting in my mind. According to the memorandum, Bell estimated, and I'm not sure where they got this estimate, that as many as two-thirds of the telephone conversations were obscene. <laughs> and they reasoned, given the possibility, now you have to put yourself back in the perspective here. There was no way of recording information at this point. So what Bell was thinking about is a change in a world where things can't be recorded to one where things can be recorded. It's a fundamental change in in the world. And they said, well, once that happens, no one will ever want to use the telephone or two-thirds of the conversations for fear it will be recorded. This is a good example, an interesting example, of technological suppression. And it's a good example, and the in some sense, the, the story of some of the dangers of information monopoly. When AT&T was the sole company that ran the telephone, when its laboratories were the only laboratories that could decide what would be invented that was related to the telephone and attached to the telephone, they had an unusual power to control the future. They had the power, or they felt they had the power, it wasn't absolute, but they felt they had the power to, for example, decide that the future shall not be recorded. Let me turn to a second story. In 1914, a young Jesuit priest named Daniel Lord wrote his first published essay. He had decided to criticize the work of George Bernard Shaw whose work he declared was worthless. The reason, said Priest, who was a Jesuit priest, is that his work is devoid of that necessary quality, truth. Daniel Lord was a man who decided to devote his life to the eradication of filth in the public sphere. He was a natural-born censor. But also a man who had very interesting ideas, as to what the purpose of entertainment is. His idea was that all entertainment should exist merely for the purpose of reinforcing established truth. Entertainment should never question what is correct, but should teach what is correct. As he once said, and as you'll see his interest was film, the audience should never be in question when it is to boo and when it is to cheer. It must always be clear that heroes are heroes and villains and villains. This may never be left made confusing to the audience. The truth is known. The point of entertainment is to teach it and to create better citizens, to mold citizens into correct behavior. Now, Daniel Lord's opinions are opinions, and we live in a free country, and it's perfectly reasonable to have these opinions. They wouldn't matter very much. Other than the fact that Daniel Lord became the man who himself penned the production code for Hollywood film that lasted for 40 years. His idea of what film should be, of what entertainment could be, became the controlling rules for all American film from the period of 1934 till 1968. How did this happen? It is again a story of industrial consolidation. And one of the greatest lessons of my book, The Master Switch, is that if you want to understand free speech in America, It's fine to pay attention to the First Amendment and to the Constitution. But if you really want to understand free speech in America, you have to understand the structure of the entertainment industries and the structure of the industries that move information because that determines how free we are when it comes to speech. And let me explain this more carefully. Daniel Lord and other uh, people who are interested in the elimination of filth in the public sphere had long pleaded with government to, to enforce laws relating to obscenity on, in film. Uh, this is the 1920s, they were concerned about, about film and obscenity in film. But at that point the industry, the film industry, was an extremely fragmented open industry with hundreds and at times thousands of producers. There was a film industry in New Jersey, a film industry in New York, a San Francisco film industry, a Hollywood, Los Angeles film industry. Chicago had some producers. It was an industry that was not centered in one particular location. It was, particularly in the late 1910s, extremely diverse. There were films from an anarchist viewpoint, socialist films, fascist films, I mean, politically speaking, films from labor, all kinds of films. Now, these were not high-quality you know, uh, uh, this was not Lord of the Rings style special effects. There were drama, it was silent. The quality, you might say, was, was poor, but the content was extremely diverse, which often ends up being the trade-off, as, as, all, as, you, as I discuss in the book, some length. And so the censors had always wanted to, to try and control film, but they hadn't succeeded because there were so many producers. And government censorship was uneven. Government censorship was uneven. People could be bribed. You know, the local policemen wouldn't really necessarily enforce the laws properly. They felt that their system was was inadequate. So in the 30s, it's only in the 1930s that the real censorship of American film began. Private censorship. And it became possible because the industry that was once hundreds and hundreds of different producers became six major studios, fully integrated, all of them located in this city. All of the independents, with a few exceptions, were hunted down and exterminated, giving rise to a different era, and that, that new era had certain advantages. The Hollywood studio owned every level of production and distribution and exhibition, so they owned The actors, they owned the cameras, they owned the studios, they owned distribution, and they owned the theaters, theater chains. They had put it all together. An industrial structure that roughly mimicked Carnegie Steel or Ford Motors. It was the application, actually for one of the first times, of industrial design theory to an entertainment industry, to create the mass production of high quality entertainment products. And for the most part, Americans loved it. King Kong, Gone with the Wind. You had an era of much higher quality film. In fact, what we believe sometimes is the golden age. But the trade-off was the creation of an industry incredibly vulnerable to censorship. Because with five, six studios, all that meant is you needed six men to censor the entire industry. And so Daniel Lord and his friends uh, got together. And they had written their production code and already had uh, sort of vaguely had the studios agree to it, but they basically ignored it since 1934. And they said, this is what we want. We want you to give every one of your film scripts to us and we will decide whether the film can be made. We want you to give us the scripts so we can exercise what in law is called a prior restraint. You can see, I hope, how this is different than the governmental system. With the government system, the film would come out, and then they would try to chase it down and, and, and find the people who made it. No, this was an effort to control film before it was made. Control what film would be before it was made. Daniel Lord, in his production code, the code that governed American film for 50 years, put in place the values I talked about earlier. Well, if you read the code, and many people know there was a production code, Uh, Their their sense of it is that it required, you know, couples to sleep in single, in different beds, or, you know, you weren't supposed to say bad words, but it was much deeper in its uh, thinking than that. It had the same idea that the role of film was to reinforce the truth, never to challenge it. And so, for example, gangsters were never to be heroes. That's why you never saw The Godfather until the 1970s. A judge could be corrupt, an individual judge or an individual police officer could be corrupt, but in the end the system could never be shown to be corrupt. You might have a marriage that is less than perfect, but the institution of marriage must be perfect. You cannot suggest that marriage is an imperfect institution. You can only suggest there are infallible humans involved in the marriage. And dancing is not to be obscene. (laughs) which is interesting because they're very similar rules to the Taliban's rules on dancing. Dancing was only allowed as long as it was not lewd. So you had these sets of rules, but what is fascinating to me is that through this combination of industrial columns, uh, that a, a, a consolidated industry inherently becomes more vulnerable to censorship, not by the people in the industry itself. They often don't care. They just want to make movies but by groups that care about content. In our day, in, in those days, uh, it happened to be the Catholic Church, which incidentally was chasing around a largely Jewish film industry on behalf of a Protestant majority. <laughs> a very strange uh, combination of, 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 of situations. But the Catholics were the censors of the Jews. Uh, uh, of of the, Not everyone in the film industry was Jewish, but all the heads of the studios were. Um, On behalf of a Catholic majority, they appointed a man named Joseph Breen, who was the man who would who would fill the uh, who would clear the scripts. And I don't want to spend too much time on this. One thing worth noting is that he was an unbelievably vocal anti-Semite. So he came to Hollywood and he wrote a letter to his friend, and he said, "I am here to try and cram some ethics, to try and cram some ethics." down the throats of the Jews. That's how he described his job. Interestingly, and I spend forever on this, Warner Brothers in the 30s, concerned about the situation in Germany, wanted to make a film highlighting Hitler's increasing persecution of Jews. The steps that were leading ultimately to concentration camps. Breen vetoed the film. So a film in the 30s that might have warned the American public of what was going on in Germany might have raised more concern in a period where people were ignoring this problem, was vetoed. There was one man who decided what film was made in America. One man was deciding what film could be made in America based on values, based on a theory that there was an established truth and his job was to enforce it. So these are two of the stories in my uh, book, obviously two of the darker stories, There are, I promise, somewhat happier stories too. (laughs) Um, And the thesis, it it leads to the the thesis of of the book, which I want to discuss with you briefly. My, My book, I spent years writing the book and in the course of it studying the history of American information industries. And my conclusion is that when you look carefully at the history, or not even that carefully, when you look at the history, what we have had in this country is a succession of monopoly or cartels in the information industries that tend to have profound consequences for what we are as a nation and even how we live our individual lives. Now, what I want to do is suggest and spend the rest of the time talking about four main reasons that the information industries tend to attract monopolies, and then show, in closing, how those four factors still remain relevant to the great monopolists of our time, Google, Facebook, Apple, and similar companies. So let's start with uh, with the four reasons. One reason that the information markets tend to attract monopolies, or one dominant firm, is it's often the case that information products become more valuable the more people who use them. Let me explain with an example. A telephone that connects four people or five people is a, is a toy. It might be useful for around the house, maybe calling the babysitter or something. A telephone that connects 10,000 people becomes, becomes more useful. But a telephone network that connects the entire nation is a tool of monopoly. In other words, a one company running a single telephone network, a single telephone network is by its nature more valuable because you can reach everybody. So all the industries that are based on networks tend to attract or tend to lead to a single company ruling them. That's the first thing. The second is what economists call economies of scale. It is a product of information, a particular product of information that once you make, once you have created the information, the cost of distributing it to more people is, is, is small. The marginal cost, to use economic terms, of reaching more people is smaller and therefore you can use one product for many, many people. Let me explain what I mean by this. If you make one television show an hour long, you can show it to ten people or you can show it to ten million people, it doesn't lose its value. It's very different than if you produce, let's say, a bowl of craft dinner. Sorry, a bowl of uh, macaroni and cheese. Craft dinner, I think, is a Canadian term. <laughs> a bowl of macaroni and cheese, you produce a bowl of macaroni and cheese, you can't share that with 10 million people. You have to create 10 million bowls of macaroni and cheese. But an information product can be shared among 10 million people or sent to 10 million people without it's losing its value. This feature of information, the fact that the more you use it, in fact, it becomes more valuable or it doesn't lose its valuable, means that things like a single film industry that creates movies for an entire country, or a telephone network, that is, not a telephone network, sorry, a television or radio network that creates one show for the whole nation, will always have an advantage over a system where every single station makes its own content. This is something that happened in the radio industry in the 1920s. Originally, radio was scattered, multiple stations, every station made its own content. You'd have a local band or something play something, and people who could hear the radio station heard what you heard. The innovation of NBC, the idea behind NBC was to build one extremely high-quality product for the entire country. And that property of information I discussed, the fact that it can be shared without losing its value, created a natural situation one or two or three networks where nationwide networks would have an advantage over scattered stations. That's reason number two. Reason number three. For reasons that, for certain reasons, something about the information industries, the industries where you create information and sell it, that tend to attract a certain kind of man, or a certain kind of individual, a person whose interest in life has much less to do with money or luxury or comfort, but with will to power and control of a private kingdom. My book is full of stories of men whose aspiration it was to build an information empire to have control over how information reaches millions of people. Something about these markets, something about that ability is very appealing to certain types of people and they, in their nature, tend to be empire builders and consolidators. For this book I interviewed a a number of CEOs. One of them who was the most honest, I mean they are all honest, but one of them who was exceptionally forthcoming about his role was uh, Jerry Levine, who I think actually lives near here now. He was the head of Time Warner uh, in the 1990s and pioneered the uh, Time Warner AOL uh, merger. But he, For a long time he was the CEO and president of the world's largest media company. He said to me that he said, you know, being a CEO, and, and he's changed his life, I think he, he works at a sort of Buddhist sanctuary now. <laughs> He has a very uh, calm kind of demeanor and sort of says things, kind of sounds like Buddha. Uh, <laughs> anyway, he looked at me and he said, you know, being a CEO is sort of a form of mental illness. And he said, and he wasn't, he said, you know, what I was interested in when I was at, at Time Warner, you know, it's was sort of in profit and uh, that kind of stuff. But he said, but really interested me, what I had reported on was touch points. What a touch points? He said, I wanted to know how many people I had reached that day. How many millions of people had the Time Warner empire reached through our television, through our magazines, through our books? How many people, how many brains, how many people had we touched that day? Millions, billions? I just wanted to know. That was a number they continually kept by gathering all the number of views, everything together. That's what he was motivated by. He didn't seem to really care about the content that much. He just wanted to know he was reaching out and connecting or touching or influencing millions of people. Now, he may be fairly benign. Oddly, one of the information theorists I study in the book, and it's a little dramatic, is but another incredibly forthright individual is Joseph Goebbels, the propaganda minister for the Nazi, for the Nazi state. Now, I don't want to compare them. They're <laughs> I, I, invidiously, um, but it's interesting how similar, he, his whole theory was that the state must centralize all radio activities, or all informational activities must be centralized in the state. Why was that so important? He said these are the industries, these are the functions that molds a disparate people into a single living unit. This is how we take a nation full of all kinds of individuals and turn them into one folk, one people, united in mind, united in action. So you can see that there has always been an appeal when it comes to industries, whether the telephone, the media, film, they have appealed to a certain type of person who wants to build an empire, and I'm not always saying for pernicious reasons, but that has an incredible appeal and so therefore we often see these giant information empires even when they don't make business sense. Time Warner never made sense as a company in some ways and still doesn't necessarily. Uh, You know, Rupert Murdoch bought the Wall Street Journal. It's not a money-making operation. It's not about money. If it were about money, if it were about money, you would see very different... In some ways, being about money would be a lot better. You would see much different things. No, it is at some level deeply about power, or to borrow from the title of my book, it is about controlling the master switch. The title of this book comes from a quote from Fred Friendly, which I'm going to read to you. Fred Friendly, who was the CBS News president in the late 50s, early 1960s, the man, he was a man, uh, with Ed Morrill, he uh, exposed the McCarthy, some of the ex- excesses of McCarthy. He wrote, and he was talking about uh, control over the broadcast networks, at stake is not the First Amendment or the right of free speech, but exclusive custody of the master switch. And what he's suggesting is that beneath our preoccupation more superficial issues of the First Amendment or, or censorship is a much deeper level of control over speech, over information in the country that depends on the structure of the underlying industries. This is something Fred Friendly understood extremely well, and it's why I titled the book this way. So let me turn now, I guess this talk was titled something about the future of the internet, so having spent most of the talk in the early 20th century. Let me turn now to to our times. What I will suggest to you, and one thing you might think, you know, listen to me, oh, the book about history, uh, sort of um, irrelevant to our times. Um, Maybe just uh, like this museum, you know, uh, relics from another time. Maybe I'm a museum piece obsessed with the early 20th century. (laughs) But what I... What I want to uh, suggest to you is that the same patterns, the same forces that created information monopolies for most of the 20th century are still in our society and are being used again in an effort to try to consolidate control over the internet. It's not surprising. It's predictable. Let me explain the ways that this is happening. I'm not, and I'm going to preface this by saying it doesn't guarantee that the internet overnight is going to become like Soviet radio or something. But what I want to suggest, I don't want to overstate the claims, but I do want to suggest the same tendencies, the same four reasons Oh, I only gave three, but <laughs> oh, I I forgot the the fourth. Um, for, let me let me do the fourth, then I'll come back to the uh, to the present day. The fourth reason that we saw this tendency of information monopolists is that government often prefers the federal government in American history has often preferred that communications be located in a monopoly, and has often acted to support monopoly rule. AT and T. In the 1910s, the great monopoly I talked about earlier, was ultimately aided by the federal government who banned competition in telephony for decades. And there was a number of reasons the federal government liked AT&T, and they sound actually quite reasonable. Number one, AT&T had promised to be a good corporate citizen, had promised to wire America, had promised to deliver the best telephone network in the world, and in many ways they did. AT&T, for its part, volunteered to be regulated in 1910s. Can you imagine a company today stepping up and saying, regulate us? Facebook saying, all right, let, let's let, bring it on, let's be regulated. Seems unlikely, but this is what they said. Their president said, regulate us, that's fine, we'll, we'll accept regulated prices. Later on, AT&T began to play a crucial role in national defense. They operated one of the laboratories that manufactured nuclear weapons for the United States in New Mexico. It's a strange country where we trust and we somehow accept that private companies not only have uh, the ability to charge high prices, but the ability to fire nuclear weapons around. <laughs> it's kind of astonishing the level of delegation of, pri- of power to private companies we see sometimes. Well, they didn't have the power to fire nuclear weapons, but they had access to the technology. And so government has often preferred and supported monopoly. They preferred monopoly when it came to radio, helping NBC and CBS establish their rule over American broadcasting. And we may see, in fact, that that trend continues today. Well, let's turn to our present day. So I had said there was four things that had tended to lead to monopoly in these industries. The first one is network effects. Many of you, or some of you, may use Facebook. And have you ever wondered, well, why do you use Facebook? Maybe it's because everybody else uses Facebook. It wouldn't be very useful to have a social networking system that had two people on it. Even 80 million people is only marginally useful. 500 million people is a useful social networking site. And so the same effects The same same network effects, the same idea that something is more valuable the more people are on it, is at work today. eBay is another good example. If you want to sell a product, do you want to go to an auction site that has 1,000 people or one that has 100 million people bidding on your products? Economies of scale. It's very hard today to find anyone who doesn't use Google unless you don't use the Internet. Is there anyone here who never uses Google? Google has a level of monopoly in this area. I didn't see any hands, in case you can't see. Maybe I'll do it this way. Who here does use Google now and then? Everyone. The the level, and it's a nice monopoly. It's a friendly. We like it. They have good colors. They're beautiful. But they are a monopoly. Some of my best friends work at Google, but they are a monopoly. And the secret to their monopoly is economies of scale. There's a couple other reasons, but what differentiates Google from its competitors and always has is the speed of its responses and the quality of the responses. And mostly the speed. It always works and it always gives you what you want. It is like a a tool that never fails. And that is because of the massive investments Google has made in its backend, in its server farms, in its computing capacities, the massive amounts of it's invested, and that is because it is the biggest. And the biggest continues to have more advantages. That's the second. Will to power. It's pretty, I think, straightforwardly obvious, although people mask it a little bit more these days. that. The motivation to own a giant tech or information company remains very similar than it ever was uh, 50 or 100 years ago. When you examine a figure like Steve Jobs, the president of Apple, and I I love Apple, they have great products, but the motivation, the, 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 the thrill of running Apple computers is the fact that Apple exercises a level of control over its products which is very similar, a level of full integration in its products, very similar to that that we see in the Hollywood studios. To produce the quality of the product, Apple relies on methods very similar to those uh, used by the Hollywood studios. That is to say, they carefully curate the content They produce beautiful devices, and I'm saying this, all of this is positive uh, stuff, and they are very careful about uh, making exclusive deals with certain network providers. They offer a high quality experience, but they demand that they be in control. That is Apple. Finally, we have the role of the federal government. This is the thing that is the most different. This is the thing that has changed the most. Because we don't have a federal government that actively uh, uh, is trying to create monopolies in every field. But we do have a federal government which is willing to tolerate them. Early in the century, the federal government would, in some sense, create monopolies and then destroy them with antitrust actions. Today we have a government which neither is willing to truly create monopolies, but also one, when they're established, is willing to let them lie. So those are the four things today. And I suggest to you, it's kind of surprising. If you look at the internet, which was meant to be, was meant to be a medium very different than anything we've seen before, and it is in many ways, obviously, email and, and chatting are much different than anything we've experienced before. But one thing is very similar about the Internet is it, too, creates monopolies. It, too tends to lead to markets which are dominated by a single firm. Facebook, Amazon, Google, eBay, Apple for downloads and, and, and music playback. Each of these is economically and textually defined as a monopoly. They're not all necessarily bad monopolies. I'm not suggesting they're evil, but they are monopolies. And it shows, as my book suggests, that these are markets that will tend to lead to one firm rule. Now, in my last minutes, I want to talk about the question of where this leaves us, what what we should do about it, how we should think about this. One thing we need to understand is that we who create monopolies, we create them through our choices. Americans have a tendency or have a great love for the idea of choice, the idea of competition, the idea of freedom. But at the same time, Americans are also a people who like reliability, like ease of use, and most of all, love convenience. That love of convenience is what creates these monopolies, in addition to everything I've said. Ask yourselves how how Google was, was created. It's better we all use it because it would be a pain to use something else nothing wrong with that, but I just want to make it clear that that is how these things, that is why monopoly is created. In some level, it's in our hands. It is the creation of us. So if we are not willing to change, if we are people who are going to, and if the factors I've described are going to continue to create monopoly in these markets, what I want to suggest is we have to maintain an extreme level of vigilance. over the men and women who end up running the information markets. We must hold them to duties beyond that which attend the leaders of normal corporations. Do no evil, which is Google's motto, can't be just a good idea. It is a duty. That's number one. Number two, we cannot allow a monopolist to stay in power for too long. The problems that I describe in the book through these stories or let me say differently. For most of the monopolists that that I describe in my book, when they come to power, there is in fact a golden age. There is an early period where there are relatively young as a company, they have good intentions, they are innovative, but what happens is slowly, piece by piece, staying in power for longer, they become increasingly like incumbent congressmen or African dictators. That is to say, (laughs) the will to innovate disappears, the will to power becomes paramount. The most important thing becomes staying in power. And that is when what I started this talk with begins to happen, suppression of technologies that might threaten the rule, suppression of speech that they don't want to hear. The problems happen in the long term with monopoly. And so we need to keep a careful eye and demand and even act as consumers to upseat monopolies that have been in power for too long. But we must, keep an, uh, we must keep a vigilance and think of it in political terms. These are not normal companies. These are politically powerful companies. The third thing, and there's, there's two more. The, the third thing is that we must demand from our government a vigilance over these industries and never accept the idea that they are just normal industries. Never accept the idea that the information industries can be just treated as any other thing and, 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 and fully deregulated. Now it's a tricky question because there is always a challenge with government becoming the instrument of a never-ending monopoly through the process of oversight. So there's a particular challenge in, in the governmental role, but we must demand at a minimum The government see it as its role in particular to exercise vigilance and understand that these companies have special duties. Facebook is a company that knows more about Americans than the IRS does. Google, which I like, and all these companies I respect, does have a potential sensorial power that exceeds almost every government. Finally. And this, I think, is important. It's important that Americans, or everyone who lives in an information economy, develop a a kind of an awareness of the information that you are consuming and where it comes from. To have a sense, similar to the way we have with food, or we're developing with food, to have a sense of the difference between mass produced information, locally produced information, to have a sense of where it all comes from. The truth is, and this is one thing I've noticed from writing this book, is the most powerful force, ultimately, is what people want and what they demand. In much of the 20th century, People wanted nothing more than powerful firms to take care of everything for them. They wanted giant institutions to run their lives, or at least that's what they let happen. It's only, and you know, by coming to a lecture you're already showing you have a level of discrimination, it's only by exercising discrimination in the information you consume, being aware of what your informational diet is in some way, that the most profound level of changes will come. Thank you very much.
0: I recall from a committee meeting 30-plus years, almost 40 years ago, uh, a government regulator or a government representative saying, when somebody asked, well, why do we regulate AT&T? Because it's big, but so is U.S. Steel, so is General Motors. His comment was that... Uh, AT&T represents 20% of the capital investment in the United States at that time. I don't know. Wow. I, it's, it's a striking figure, and I hadn't thought about it. The other is you spoke of the desire for power. Uh, was Theodore Vail in starting AT&T, looking at it that way? Did he have the same innards mm. that the people we think of now? Or, mm. And did it evolve into just a corporation keeping control Right. Uh, and resisting technological right. change.
1: My, my book is mostly about moguls and their, and their, the stories of the, of the moguls and their, and their instincts. And there are differences, I do not have time to explain them in this talk. There are differences between the people who end up running content industries, just to speak of generally, people who create movies or, or TV shows, and the people who run infra, infrastructure, you know, wires like, like, uh, like Vail. I think Vale's great vision was the vision of the perfect system. And this was the imprint on AT&T for for decades. That they believed that human perfectibility was a possibility and that through great engineering, the smartest people, you could build an absolutely perfect integrated system. But to do so, they had to control every single thing in the system. One of my chapters talks about, in addition to the answering machine, talks about a man who's trying to sell a phone silencer, uh, something you attach to your phone and then uh, people wouldn't be able to, you know, like this. at and brought an extensive court case to try to have this device extinguished because it was a foreign attachment to the perfect system. So I think he was obsessed with the idea, two ideas. One of having a national network which would cover the entire nation. He said once, one day it will be possible to telephone everyone on the earth. Everyone's like, this guy is crazy. <laughs> One day it will be possible to telephone everyone. So he had this vision of connecting every single person on the Earth. I think it was a very powerful vision. And second, that vision of a perfect system. Mr. Levine in his role with Time Warner AOL. Yeah. And then you likened him, perhaps, in I did not like. got it. Enough. Let me just, rephrase yeah. that.
0: You mentioned right. uh, Mr. Goebbels. I just wondered if it might not have
1: been more apt to mention um, Mr. Breen in, con- in, in likeness to Mr. Goebbels. Judge Green? Um, Breen, I think that Breen, wasn't he the censor in the 30s? Oh, uh, uh, Daniel Lord. Oh, Mr. Breen, Yes, sorry, sorry, yeah. Uh, Ken, uh, Joseph Green. yes. Yeah, that, that, that's a good, that's a good comparison. Okay, well, thanks. They're slightly different. Um, no, I, I, I actually regret, uh, uh, putting the juxtaposition so closely between, uh, you know, uh, Jerry Levine, who's a wonderful fellow, uh, and, and, um, Obviously, the <laughs> propaganda minister of the Nazi government. But <laughs> what I wanted to say is that what, is, what appealed to totalitarian states about running an information network was the ability to mold the citizenry. Like That was an incredible appeal. And it, the Soviets had the same idea. And in some degree, whenever you build a centralized system for pushing information to people... You gain a power to mold them. Um, one of the stra- most crazy inventions of, in human history, in my opinion, most unusual. We'll look back at it and say, "Like, wow, that was amazing!" Is this thing called prime time? The idea that 200 million people would sit down at the same time and watch the same, roughly the same information, or a choice of three different channels, say. But you know, for a show like I Love Lucy, one of the things that motivated me to write this book was when I found out that. Episodes of I Love Lucy in the 50s sometimes attracted upwards of 70 million viewers for a sitcom. So you have an entire nation watching the same information and that is something that doesn't exist today other than sometimes the Super Bowl, Super Bowl halftime shows, which does not happen today and did not happen before could not have happened before the 20th century. So you have this window of time in history, maybe 50 or 60 years of human history, where you have entire nations expose the same information at the same time. And I think that's a really, when you stop and think about it, you think, wow, that, you know, many of us grew up in that and just sort of think it's normal. But for the four million years before 1930, it didn't exist. And since basically 2000, it hasn't quite existed. So there's this strange little chunk of human history where you have this prime time. And prime time is a powerful instrument for molding a citizenry. injury.
0: I loved your Thank talk, you. and especially the part about are being mindful of who's providing us the information and what their motivations are. So two phrases I would love to be in our language are commercial correctness and commercially incorrect. The information that we get for the most part is commercially correct, supports commercial values. And what we are mostly missing in our commercial media, because it's sponsored by commercial interests, is commercially incorrect information, stuff that flies in the face of commercialism. So my question is, you are the spinner of the term uh, net neutrality, and that's a huge issue right now. I was sort of surprised that you laid wonderful groundwork for it, but you didn't really discuss it. So could you say a few words oh, about sure. what that yeah, is? Well,
1: if you're like, uh, the rolling, like a, a rock and roll band, you don't always want to sing the same song. <laughs> you want to talk about something else. And I, I, I always, always end up talking about net neutrality. It's sort of like uh, you know, Blondie and Rapture or something. you know, you get stuck on this This tune that you wrote ten years ago and everyone still likes. Um, (laughs) Sorry to to put it that way, but let let me say a thing about you said about commercial content. I just want to say one thing about it. In 1923, Herbert uh, Hoover, who was then the Commerce Secretary, obviously became president. He said, and it was a little off, but it is inconceivable that we should allow a scientific marvel like radio to be consumed by advertising chatter. And everyone agreed in 923, the big conference, that they had to absolutely ban all advertising on radio. And they talked to him and they said, This is crazy. This is a miracle of science. How can we have adver- well, advertising? It's, uh, you don't take you know, God's voice connecting people together and try and advertise fake teeth and dentures That's, and, and baked beans. That's crazy. Right? We, I can't imagine. He said, Can you imagine a presidential speech followed by an advertisement? This is what he said. And this doesn't shock us anymore because we're so used to it. <laughs> but in the 1920s, there was a period where advertising was strictly banned on American radio. Uh, Herbert Hoover, who's not quite like a left-wing wild man, he just thought, that's crazy, you know, this is too important. It's like putting up billboards in the Grand Canyon or something. We just can't imagine that. Um, we don't think that way. There's no very little sensitivity. The Internet became commercial pretty early on. You know, everything has an advertisement on it. It kind of makes everything free. We don't really pay any attention to that fact. Um, I don't know. It does make things easier. If we don't... Google Maps is free. A lot of things are free. So it's, hard. it's easy to see why we, we do it. But we have completely lost that sensitivity. Uh, net neutrality. Uh, the earlier question, the gentleman said, well, why is AT&T regulated? And one of the reasons... I don't want to spend a, give a huge speech on net neutrality because it could take, take a, a long time, but there are certain things in our society which are essential and which everybody relies on in every business. And I'll give you four of them. Everything relies on energy supply, like electricity, transportation, airplanes, trains, so forth, communications, telephone, internet, so on, which we're talking about today, and credit, money, all these are requirements for any uh, working society, any working economy to function. And so all those industries are always a little bit different. All these industries carry special duties of non-discrimination. We've seen this with the financial crisis, where the idea of the credit supply drying up was so terrible you had to, we had to... Or the government felt had to put 800 billion dollars or a trillion dollars to save the system. So these are not really fully public industry, uh, private industries. And what net neutrality is, to circle back to this, is the manifestation of those policies which were traditionally called common carriage or public calling policies uh, in, in English common law. The manifestation of those ideas as applied to communications. Net neutrality says that the internet because it's an input into so many businesses, because it is a common network for everyone, the great universal network, it must be non-discriminatory. It must be someone that any company or any individual can access. Neutrality is also extremely important as a principle of free speech. Because it says that you know, this network is like the great river or the, or the street. And anyone can get out there and try and be heard. doesn't mean people will listen to you but it means you can try to put your content up there and see whether someone wants to hear you or you can talk to your friends or whatever. But that network must remain open to anyone who wants to speak as a free speech matter. So in some sense, the cure, one of the cures to what I'm talking about, the problems of private censorship, lies in keeping some channels of communication always open. And that
2: is a big part of what net neutrality is about. Isn't net neutrality really the issue? I mean, it's kind of up for grabs now and where you talked initially about Mm -hmm. people having the right ideas and starting their companies, but then once they became entrenched, sometimes they shifted how they were thinking. Mm. We saw that with Google recently, where Mm. they're talking to, I think it was Verizon, about possibly modifying their position on net neutrality. Right. And if a company were to have to pay more, depending on how much bandwidth they used on the internet, that would keep a lot of people from innovating because it would be a bigger barrier to entry. And so isn't net neutrality, the internet is the real network. These other companies like Google and eBay, they're kind of like sub-networks. Right, right. Riding on that main network. That's the one we should be concerned about. Right. And are these monopolies even that entrenched these days? People like Google because I use Google hundreds of times a day. right. And I've noticed the searches are not getting better. They're getting worse. Right. And because it's more geared towards advertising now, and even when I'm looking for something very specific where an advertising response should not be the first thing that right. comes up, the thing I want could be 50 pages back, and it should come up first.
1: I'm very sympathetic to the, the, the view you're putting, putting forward. So one thing that... The, real, the question, the underlying question in the book is whether we're destined to repeat history or not. Right, whether one great or two or three great monopolists are destined to sort of take control of the internet the way the, the film industry became controlled by Hollywood or become, and, and, you know, and the way that the phone networks became AT&T at some point. Is that going to happen again? And the argument that it's not was just stated by this gentleman in some ways and is tied to net neutrality which is to say that maybe now things are profoundly different as long as the internet remains open. Because if the internet remains open, it is always possible to start another company that can unseat or destroy the existing company. It's much harder for a company to insulate itself permanently. So perhaps if, perhaps if we are able to maintain the internet as that channel, as that avenue, as that opening, where the new company can always come along and destroy the old, maybe we will have conquered this problem. Now, there's two, two problems with this idea. It's an idea I like, and it's an idea I've, I've uh, uh, in my own, in my scholarship, my academic role, have pushed this idea quite extensively in, in, uh, in, in policy discussions. There's two problems. Number one, number one is it's only... A good theory, if the internet remains neutral, and so if if, if you lose that neutrality, if it begins eroded, if it's uh, if the network if the internet becomes redesigned so that it permanently favors some companies over another, so if Google, for example, is makes the deals with Verizon, AT and T, so it can never be displaced because Google always loads faster and its competitors always load slower, then it's hard for another company to beat Google because they have this deeper advantage. So if net neutrality gets broken, that's over. Number two uh, comes if companies manage to, in some sense, invent an alternative to the internet. That may seem kind of far-fetched. It seems like very hard to replace the internet. But in some sense, what Facebook is trying to do, and, and you know, I don't think they're sitting around plotting. But I do think... In some ways, they want Facebook to be the platform, not the internet to be the platform. So everything happens on Facebook. And Apple, I think, wants the internet kind of to be involved, but really the iPhone or the iPad to be the platform. And those are controlled platforms. They are different than the internet. And it will be hard to start an app on Facebook that destroys Facebook. Right? I wouldn't, I don't, you may not be familiar with Facebook apps, but you know the little things, treasure hunts, things like that. Um, It'll be hard to build something on their platform that destroys them. And if those platforms are what matters, not the internet, not the raw internet, then it'll be hard, very hard to displace companies that are in, in place. So I, I am optimistic about what you say, but, I, but there, it could be overcome.
2: My question just concerns your research for the book, um, specifically sure. with respect to objectivity. Okay. And I'm, I'm very sensitive to the subject matter and net neutrality and so forth, but. I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, okay, sure. I mean, there's the days of the old the studio system. Mm-hmm. We, we get that. We understand the consequences of that. <clears throat> but today, we have Wikipedia, mm-hmm. free information, user-generated content, essentially. We have YouTube, user, user-created content. We have Twitter. Uh, we also have effectively... Uh, file sharing, uh, not, right. notwithstanding the, the major the music industry and so forth. So isn't there something fundamentally different going on right. now right. than days of old?
1: Yes. And furthermore, how
2: did that tie into your research?
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's a great question. I uh, occasionally believe we are in kind of a golden age. Like, you know, not everything's perfect, but in terms of availability of information, availability, the ability for citizens to speak, you know, not everything we, like, we hear is necessarily what we want to hear. but in terms of being something like the Framers wanted in the, in the, when they wrote the Constitution, I think we're in some ways close. Wikipedia is fantastic. Some people hate Twitter. I like it. I agree with you in a lot. My, bu- my book is simply only to say, look at history, look at the fact that these industries have always been monopolies, and if we like the kind of information environment we have, know that, it doesn't, that we could lose it. That, that's my message to you, that we could lose it. That you can't just sort of sit back and say, "Well, we've solved all these problems; we've solved them forever," because there are forces that will tend to build things back together again, and that is a lesson. Let me say uh, just the last thing. Thank, thank you uh, so much. I, I'm really, truly grateful for you coming out. I, I just, you know, I'm, I'm honored. Uh, I don't live in Los Angeles, and the fact that I could come to a foreign city, way across uh, country, is uh, I'm honored. I'm, I'm really pleased to see everyone. And uh, this museum is just, I, I, I wanted to say one thing about this, I forgot to say it earlier, which is you look around and you notice how, how different cars were at one period. And you, and you have less, it's, there's a lesson here from what I'm talking about, is that consolidation tends to destroy diversity. If you look at cars now, they all look the same. Why? Because the industries are incredibly centralized and standardized. And so you don't have cars that look like this, like this, like this because there's only a limited number of companies that are doing things and everything is standardized. So much of what matters in life that makes things interesting comes when we live in a society that is a little more broken up, a little more diverse, where the industries are a little more decentralized. I think it's quite important. Thank you very much, I hope you buy the book. I promise it's a good read. (laughs) It may sound like technical, but it's a great read. Thank you very much.